He is risen. He is risen. There we go. Amen. This morning, we look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Sermon title this morning is After Darkness, Light. From John chapter 20, verse 1 through 23. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Lord Jesus, we raised from the dead through the resurrection. And the Apostle Paul was right. If you are not raised from the dead, then we should be pitied among all people in this world. Jesus, if you are not alive, and if we're praying to this ceiling right now, then the world should rightly look at us in mockery. But because Jesus, you are alive, it changes everything. We thank you that you are not dead, that you are seated at the right hand of the Heavenly Father, reigning and ruling with all authority in heaven and earth. And we look to your word and we want to hear from you, we want to receive from you, we want to be changed by you this morning. Father, I ask for help to preach your word as faithfully as I possibly can, and I know that I'm going to not preach as faithfully as I could. So come and take my imperfect words and my imperfect preaching and use it perfectly in the lives of each person here who needs to hear from you right now this morning. Holy Spirit, I trust that you're going to work. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Jesus has died. We spent three weeks looking at the crucifixion. Jesus died. The apostles, Jesus' very own mother, Anybody who knew him, Lazarus, Mary, Martha, all were grieving. They were grieving the loss of their friend. Mary grieving the loss of her son. They did not yet understand the resurrection, the scriptures that spoke about the resurrection, and they were simply sad. You've been to a wake before, and you've experienced, I'm sure, personal loss. Grandparent, mother, brother, sister, son, daughter, You've experienced sadness, and this is what they were experiencing. Real-life sadness, real-life grieving, real-life tears. They felt the pain of lost, of loss. Luke 24, verse 13 to 21 gives us insight to this. And I'm just going to read it and make a couple comments on it. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were walking together, each about and talking about the things that had been happening. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with him, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. He said to them, what is this conversation you're holding to each other as you walk? They stood still and they were looking sad. Then one of them, named Clopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? He said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped, that word is crucial, hoped, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. They thought, this is it. The one who's going to redeem Israel, he's here. The Messiah's here. It's happening. We're seeing it with our very eyes. The prophets spoke of it. We've heard stories about it. We've talked about it. We've longed for it as Roman guard invades our space, our land, our territory, our temple. 
We longed for the day and we believed that He was here. We thought the Redeemer, the one who was going to come and do what we thought the Messiah would do. We thought He was the one. We had hoped that He was the Redeemer of Israel. But then He died. It's been three days. We thought this was it. We thought we were seeing it right in front of us. The very work of God. We thought redemption was here. And now it's gone. Death has won. He's been defeated. Maybe he wasn't the one who was to come. Hope lost. Have you ever had your hopes crushed? I mean crushed. Dreams destroyed. What seemed so obvious to you, what so obvious your future was going to look like, and all of a sudden everything begins to crumble, and it's just like sand, and it goes through your hands. You think it was right there. We were so close. Hope lost is so crushing. Imagine not just personal loss, but creation itself losing. You know, Romans 8 speaks of a groaning creation. It's like creation is alive and groaning the fact that things are not restored. They're longing to be restored. Imagine not just those who knew Jesus, not those who just simply walked with Him, but creation itself, the trees, thinking, I thought redemption was here. I thought He was the one. The seas, the oceans. We thought He was the one, but death, death has won. He has been defeated. The one who we had hoped would redeem Israel is now dead. In verse 1-4 through four in chapter 20 of John, the sadness continues. Not only do they think that Messiah has been killed or the one they thought the Messiah was dead, but they thought His body was stolen. Look at verse 1-4 through four in chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. She ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to him, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple. They were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running. And the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. It was the first day of the week, Sunday. For some reason, it's always been confusing to me about three days, uh, Friday to Sunday, Jesus being resurrected on Sunday. But just count with me how many days Friday, Saturday, and Sunday is. Friday is how many days? One. Saturday. Two. Sunday. Three. Friday's included. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. It is now the third day. Mary goes to the tomb, walks to the tomb. We find out in the other gospel accounts she was not alone. Mary Magdalene is highlighted in John chapter 20. She walks to the tomb. She sees that the stone has been rolled away and she immediately turns. She doesn't walk in. She immediately sees the stone's turned away, rolled away. She turns and she begins to run. John and Peter were staying in another house, a different house than all the rest of the disciples. And she reports back to them what she believes she saw. They've taken the Lord's body. Not... He's resurrected yet. They've stolen the Lord's body. We don't know what they have done. Peter and John, they hear the news. They run to the tomb. Peter apparently is very slow with running. John outruns Peter, leaves Peter in the dust. 
Now, we don't know how far the distance was. Maybe Peter's a faster sprinter than John. I don't know. And John is a faster runner, a long-distance runner. We don't know the case behind the story. But anyway, John outruns Peter. Peter stops. I can imagine him running. And my goodness, John, <sighs> catching his breath. Finally, both of them get to the tomb. Look at verse 5. The story keeps going. Stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there. But he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up and put in place. Then the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. The men arrive. John kind of peeks in but doesn't walk in. Simon Peter, in his typical flamboyant attitude about life, gets there and runs immediately into the tomb. He sees the face cloth was folded. In fact, you may have heard this before, uh, that the folded cloth has some significance to it. You ever heard this before, that the folded cloth was a Jewish uh, tradition in a dinner where you'd fold it and you'd put it on the table and it would, return, it would signify that you're coming back? Have you heard that before? Well, there is absolutely no evidence for that being actually true. Uh, it's not found in the Bible or in the Jewish Mishnah or the Talmud. In fact, as you research that, you'll find that in 2007, I believe, there was an internet story that went viral and it had this account in it and it spread so fast that people already just believe that that's what happened. It's not actually the case. So we don't know the significance behind the folded, behind the folded uh, face napkin or the whatever it was, but he, he did fold it and put it there. Uh, Jesus, in fact live the perfect life in your place, meaning he didn't sinfully fold clothes. And everybody else sinfully folds clothes because you hate folding clothes just like I do, and you even more hate putting clothes away. That's why my couch down in my office where my, right next to my, if you go on my couch, there's, you know, I, I clean it once every two weeks, and then Jordan and I argue about it for two weeks. And because in the two weeks, there's clothes just landed right there on that couch. I mean, my, my closet's right there, but it's so hard going two steps further, getting the hanger out, putting it on the shirt. It's so much easier just to take the folded clothes and put them on the couch. Here's a tip, fellas. Your wife will love you more if you put the clothes on the hangers. Amen. Jesus folds the linen, puts it down. But to be sure, Jesus is coming back. But apparently... And again, somebody should coin this. Not everything you read on the internet is true. So mark that down in your notes and remember that. But John 8, or John chapter 20, verse 8, we see that John sees the evidence and believes. They didn't completely understand, but he looks in. John, after Peter runs in, John leans in. And even though they don't fully under, understand the Old Testament, all of the scriptures, they had some evidence in front of them. And John believed. John believed. And this models for us, I think, a very important principle that we don't have to understand everything before we believe it. Not that we blindly walk into anything, but we do not have to understand everything. We are not God. 
We have limited capacities in our mind and we cannot understand everything. John, even though he has questions, even though he doesn't understand all the scriptures yet, believes that Jesus is alive. He considered the evidence in front of them. If they stole the body, they would have had to roll the stone away, take off Jesus' clothes, fold the cloth, put it neatly down, and take Jesus naked and rotting away. And John, looking at the evidence, thought, you know, it's more probable that Jesus is, in fact, alive. We don't have to know everything, but by the grace of God, we can believe with some questions. And, you know, for really, for everybody, we all have to come to reasonable conclusions about Jesus. We have to consider the evidence, and we have to accept it or reject it. We talk a lot about that through the Gospel of John. We have to consider the claims of Christ and these claims that are here in front of us. Jesus is alive or he is not alive. It's folklore, it's story, they really did steal the body, or Jesus is, in fact, risen from the grave. These are facts, historical realities that have been written, so we either accept them or reject them. And this models, again, an important principle. No matter what route you take in life, philosophically, theologically, agnostically, scientifically, no matter what itly after it, no matter what position you take in life, there are going to be questions. You're not going to be able to figure everything out in life. So we consider the evidence and make some decisions. So, Peter and John, they're at the grave. They see the evidence. John believes. We don't hear anything about Peter yet. They walk away from the grave and they go home. So now we're left. Peter here, or Mary here standing at the grave. And we find out from the other Gospels, as I said, there's a group of ladies that are now at the grave. Okay, so here we go. We pick it up with Mary still by the stone weeping. Look at verse 11. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept... She stooped to look in the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had laid, one at the head, one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried away his body, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Mary is crying. The angels show up. She's asking, where's the body? She supposes the man she's talking to is an angel. And in the Gospel of John, we get the first scene of the risen Lord. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. He speaks to her, and she's confused. And then something interesting happens. Look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. To my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she had said these things, and that he had said these things to her. I'm going to ask us to turn to a parallel passage. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 28, verse 8 through 10 is what we're going to be looking at. I'll give you time to turn there. 
It may be on the screen if, if we can get it up there. Matthew chapter 28, 8 through 10. And I want you to see specifically that these ladies, Mary and the girls, are the first to hear the good news of Jesus, that He is resurrected, that He is alive. And then Jesus is going to commission them to do something, and to do something very specific. And it has, I believe, some tremendous implications. Look at verse 28, chapter 28, verse 8. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came and took hold of His feet, and they worshipped Him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and they will see Me there. So this is a parallel passage here. Mary and the ladies, they see Jesus. It's not just Mary Magdalene. And they grab on to His ankles. They grab on to His legs. And then Jesus and John will say, Do not cling to Me. Not necessarily do not touch to me, but do not cling to me. And there's different debates about what that means. But first, I want us to consider the fact that ladies are first to hear from the angels, and then they're told by Jesus to do something. And many of you have heard this before. Uh, Many have heard that the Bible is, in fact, uh, demeaning overall to to ladies, to women in general. And uh, really, if you look at the Bible and, and you look at the restrictions laid upon ladies in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, or even the fact that God calls men primarily and men exclusively to be apostles, but then men exclusively to be elders in the church as well, the conclusion is, well, God has somehow you know, believes or created women less than, or all that is just cultural, and we should really just move on from that. And I want us to see that this this is the furthest thing from the truth. That Jesus addresses these ladies and says some specific things to them. And ladies, I want to speak to you as equals because, in fact, you are equals. But you are so much more than equal. And I said this earlier this week and I've said it to you before. But gender equality is really, really demeaning. Let 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 me say that again so you hear it clearly. Gender equality is really demeaning. Because it doesn't say enough. To say to men and women, you guys are fully equal, and then to stop there, is to take something from men and women. It's not to call them up to something, it's to rob them and steal from them. Because ladies and men, you are so much more than simply equal. Equality in our world is kind of masquerade as sameness, that you're just human. We're all equally human. We're all equal and therefore the same. But it's so demeaning because it looks men and women in the eyes and says, you're human, but you're nothing more. And Jesus is going to speak to you as women, as ladies, showing you that you are not only equal, but you are also feminine and that you are recognized as a woman and not as a man. And men, you are bestowed dignity upon and above above human. You're, You're more than human. You're a man. So ladies, above and beyond humanity, men, above and beyond humanity, women, men. And there is beauty and dignity in that. Jesus, as He speaks to these ladies, honors them and commissions them. In the Scriptures, sometimes God speaks to humans and tells humans to do the exact same thing. So the implications are equally for men and women. And then sometimes in the Bible, God speaks directly to women, and then the implications of those words are directly and specifically to women and not for men. 
And then sometimes in the Bible, God speaks to men and the implications and applications of what God says to men are for you men and not for the ladies. Men and women are both commissioned to do certain things and restricted from doing certain things. The commissioning and restrictions are both for men and for women. And that is not demeaning in any way. We are both told what to do and what not to do. And he gives authority to men and women in differing dominions and places. Ladies, you have bestowed authority upon you from God. Men, you have been bestowed authority on you from God in specific places and been commissioned to specific things. In Matthew 28 and in John 20, Jesus commissions these women and consequently you are commissioned in the Great Commission equally to every man in this room. And Jesus shows the world women will not take a back seat in His mission. Maybe in the mission of Rome, maybe in the mission of the Jewish world, but not in His mission. You will not have a back seat. You will be front and center on the mission field with Him. They are disciples, these women, and commissioned to be evangelists in the exact same way any man has ever been. So ladies, you don't have a back seat in this. You are called to be evangelists. And if God calls you to the mission field, you may be called to give your very life. Jesus will use you in that way for His glory and for your good. So there are some implications to His calling and His commissioning, showing Himself first to these women and then telling them, go and tell my apostles the good news. These ladies are called to be evangelists to the very disciples who would become apostles. Ladies, you are proclaimers, teachers, tellers of the good news to the world. In verse 17 of chapter 19, or chapter 20, if we flip back, we have a very confusing passage. There's three confusing passages that we look at today, and this is one of them. Don Carson noting on the confusing verse in chapter, chapter 20, um, when, when Jesus says, Don't cling to me, I am not yet ascended to my Father. And there are so many different understandings of this passage. And it, as Don Carson notes, belongs to, the most, to, to a handful of the most difficult passages in the New Testament to understand. I would call you to study that and pray through that, read commentaries on that. Uh, I'm not even going to try to tackle it because I honestly I have no idea what it means. And so uh, I just don't know. Study it and look at it and maybe you can come up with something. There are many different versions or different understandings of it. I just simply don't know. But for us, I want us to look at 19 and continue the story because Jesus doesn't just appear to them, doesn't just commission these ladies, but he begins to walk and talk and meet with people and show himself to people as being alive in the flesh. Look at verse 19. On the evening of the day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, the disciples were, fear, were, were there for the fear of the Jews. Jesus came and he stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed to them his hands and his side. The disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Okay, Jesus walks through locked doors. Jesus is resurrected. He's alive. Okay, we're all on the same page here, right? We see Jesus being alive after he was crucified. He's alive and he walks through locked doors. And he begins to speak. So one thing we find out about the resurrected body is the resurrected body has this ability, Jesus has this ability, to walk through a locked door. Now if you and I lock these doors out here and we go trying to walk through that door, we'll find out real quick that we can't walk through a door. Right? 
You ever tried? Really? Just, I'm going to try to move something with my mind. I'm going to go X-Men on this. I'm going to try to walk through a wall or see through that wall. And you try it, and you'll get a broken nose. Go run full speed and try to walk through that wall, and you'll see real quick that you do not have this ability. But Jesus, apparently, in his resurrected body, walks through this locked door and then begins to speak, and the disciples understand his language. Now, this is, I think, interesting. As they see him, as they look at his wounds, as they see the wound in his body, his hands, his feet, they recognize him. Now, friends, when we are resurrected one day, we will recognize each other. We will not be strangers. We will not have memory wipe from this earth. We will see things in right perspective, but we'll know each other. George and I are going to be friends for eternity. My wife and I will be friends forever. For the rest of eternity, forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever, plan on being best friends with my wife. We will know each other. Maybe Matt, Matt Crane and I will go fishing or running together when things are restored in this place. But we'll know each other forever. Jesus is recognizable to them and they understand his words. And look at the first words that he speaks to them. Peace be with you. It wasn't, you idiots left me. Why didn't you stand by my side? Why didn't you defend me? He did not give them a guilt trip. He did not want to see if they were really sorry or really repentant. The first words out of his mouth to those who had abandoned him and left him alone was peace. Peace be with you. He didn't say, you're not worthy of me being in this room. He said, peace. Vengeance for their sin was satisfied and he did not have any more for them. He was there to bring peace for sinners and he still is there alive to bring peace for sinners. And so often people think, that for Jesus to come and be around me, I've got to clean myself up before I come to him. That is not the Christian message. Jesus is a friend of sinners, and we come to him as such. Before they were able to say, I'm sorry, you're alive. I love you. We should have been there. We should have been fighting for you. We shouldn't abandon you. I shouldn't have denied you. Jesus says, peace. The gracious word of peace. And then in verse 20, we get the most underwhelming response ever. Jesus is there. He shows them the scars on his body. He's resurrected. He's right in front of them. He's recognizable. They see him in the same way that we will be recognizable to each other. And then we see how ecstatic they were, <laughs> or apparently not. Then the disciples were glad that they saw the Lord. They were glad. Now, that just seems so weird. And I love that the scriptures do this. Like, you would think... Then the disciples saw that it was Jesus and they jumped up and down and they shouted at the top of their lungs and they clapped their hands and they praised him and they ran to him and they rallied around him and they started chanting his name and they went to the streets and proclaimed. They were glad. <laughs> they were glad. One of the reasons I know the scriptures are true because that's so weird. Like they were shell shocked. It was like, wait a minute, processing. How's he alive? How's he in front of me right now? Thinking through the scriptures and wondering, wait, we know he was crucified. We see the wounds in his hand and he's healed already. 
He just walked through the door. You see somebody walk through the door, you're going to be pretty shell-shocked. Like, wait a second. What's going on? An underwhelming response. And then Jesus begins to speak to them as they're all kind of sitting there, like nervous, palms sweating, heart beating. He's alive. We're glad. We're happy. But we're also a little bit nervous. And Jesus begins to speak to them. And he begins to speak prophetically to them. Look at verse 21. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Again, Jesus says some things, and I wish he would say them differently. But when I wish Jesus would say something differently, it's not that he's wrong, it's that I'm wrong. And I've got to try to wrestle and find out, okay, why did he say things this way? And so do you. And we've got to wrestle with the rest of the scriptures. And these passages are somewhat confusing. And if you, again, if you get into commentators, the, there's three parts of the sermon today that people just disagree on. They don't fully understand. And this, I really do believe, I've got some direction for you to consider today. Um, and so Jesus begins to speak to them. And I think what he's doing is giving them a prophetic word over them. He tells them what he's about to do. Not many, many days from now. So Pentecost, Pentecost, 50, 50 days from Jesus' resurrection from the Passover is Pentecost. It, the Holy Spirit will be sent and will come upon the believers. And so Jesus says to them in verse 21 that he's sending them. So this is before his ascension. And during his ascension, right before his ascension, he's going to give them the Great Commission. So Jesus is telling these disciples that are there uh, that I'm going to send you as the Father has sent me. And not many days when he ascends, he gives them the Great Commission. And then he breathes on them and, and says, receive the Holy Spirit. We find out one verse, one chapter, one page later, if you just turn one page in Acts chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, Jesus says, wait, stay in Jerusalem, don't go anywhere until you are baptized with the Spirit upon high. So what he's doing right now can't be, cannot be, as he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit, in verse 22, it cannot be for them what's going to happen at Pentecost. Because Jesus tells them, wait, stay, until you're baptized with the Holy Spirit upon high. So what I believe is happening is Jesus as prophetically foreshadowing what he's going to do for them not many days from now. So he's telling them beforehand, you're going to be sent, and you're going to be sent with the power of the Holy Spirit, and you're going to be sent thirdly with a message. The message of forgiveness of sins. This is the Great Commission and the empowering of the Holy Spirit to be sent out. And he says that we're going to be forgiving the sins of people. And if we do that, they're going to be forgiven. And if we don't forgive people, then they're not going to be forgiven. Now, I want you to look at that verse real closely. Jesus tells them, if you forgive the sins of anybody, they will be forgiven. You can't misread it. And if you withhold forgiveness from anybody, they will not be forgiven. What in the world is Jesus talking about? Because we know that only God can forgive sins. I can't forgive anybody's sins. And this is what we need to do as we think about this verse. We need to use the principle, what's called the principle of perspicuity, which is the, the, the teaching that the Bible is clear in what it teaches. And when there's something that's unclear, you have to use the rest of the Bible to understand what the Bible's teaching. So I've used an example before that if we had, you know, 50 chairs sitting out here, and if we have one chair... Of the 50, that's turned in this direction. So you could come and you could sit down in this chair this way. But 49 of them are focused this way and turned this way where you could sit this way. 
And if I was to ask you, which is the chair or chairs that are out of place? You would quickly be able to say, that one. The one that's facing that way. And you'd come and you'd turn and you'd turn it this way. Now, when the Bible speaks clearly on a topic, and then we have verses that are somewhat confusing and less clear like this. We use the Bible to interpret the Bible. Here's what we don't do. We don't take a passage like this and interpret everything that's clear in the rest of the Bible in light of this verse. So the wrong application to this verse would be to say, it's not God that can forgive sins alone, it's you. And we don't need to go preaching Jesus, we actually need to go out and say, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And with our word, we can go out and just forgive everybody's sins. That is not what Jesus is saying. In light of the rest of this passage and the commission that will come and the preaching of the apostles who had heard Jesus' words here in John chapter 20, here's what these words mean. Within you, this message that's within you about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, you have within you the power of forgiveness. And if you preach this message, if you'll teach this message, people will be forgiven. But if you withhold it, if you shrink, and if you step back, forgiveness will be withheld. This is a reality that's upon us today. Forgiveness of sins is there for people. It's out there. And you and I are commissioned, we come back to this almost every week, to proclaim, to talk about this gospel, to tell people the greatest thing in the world is that you can have your sins forgiven. John Calvin said, commenting on this verse, nothing, nothing is more important to us than to be able to firmly believe, firmly believe, that our sins do not come into remembrance before God. Amen. Friends, you can sleep well at night knowing that that guilt that's there, that sin that's there, you can be forgiven. And there are people all across this globe that have a guilty conscience and they're running from one thing to the next, trying to wipe away that conscience or suppress that conscience or say there's no God, there's, I shouldn't feel this way. And we have this message and this charge to tell about the forgiveness of sins. It's the message we proclaim. God exists. He created you. You have sinned against God, wanting to do life your own way and wanting to fix yourself. Jesus lived the life you should be living. He fearlessly trusted His Father and obeyed the Father's good law. Jesus died the death you earned so sins could be forgiven. But here's what we see in the Scriptures. Jesus did not stay dead. He didn't stay dead. He's alive. And I want to talk to you about four implications, and then we'll be done. Four implications of the resurrection. We just saw this. We read it. We saw the, the narrative that Jesus is, in fact, alive. It's a historical claim. This isn't just a figment of our imagination where we just people actually saw Jesus and then died because they said, I physically saw him. This isn't second-generation Christians who said, well, they told me they saw him alive. This is first-generation of people who said, I saw him. And these people died because of that. Four implications from the resurrection. And number one, we are not living a purposeless life. Number one, you can write this down. We're going to look at a few passages. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 14. And we're going to look at verse 17 through 23. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And here's what it says. Four implications 
that come from the resurrection. Number one, we are not living a purposeless life. Here's what chapter 15, verse 14 says. And if Christ has not been risen, not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And then 17 to 23 says this. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope only in this life, this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Most to be pitied. But if in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ, also in Christ all should be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then those at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So let me say it to the negative or to the positive. If Christ has been raised, then your faith isn't in vain. And you shouldn't be pitied. Because you have purpose in this life. If he's not been raised, you should be pitied. People should look at you and say, those poor folks, they believe what is false. (laughs) They're living so foolishly. But if Christ has been raised, then you have great purpose. You have a great mission. You have been commissioned, not by a figment of our imagination, not by a philosophical idea, but a risen Lord who has looked at you and said, I am commissioning you. And you shouldn't be pitied. You are living a purposeful life, not a purposeless life. Number two, Second implication from the resurrection, our justification is secure. Romans chapter 4 says this. You can turn there or not with me. I'm going to read as soon as I find it. Romans chapter 4, 22 through 25 says this. This is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But if the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake only, but for ours also, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The fact that Jesus rose from the grave shows us that His sacrifice on the cross was accepted by the Father. And what that means for those who are in Christ is your sins are fully forgiven, all of them. That your justification is secure. If you are saved, as certainly as Jesus was raised from the grave, you also will be raised one day. Your sins are forgiven. Don't doubt it. When you're in sin and the flesh brings condemnation, the enemy comes and assaults you, you look to the risen Lord and you know that I am forgiven. I am a son or daughter of the living God. The righteousness of Christ is upon me. I will not doubt it. I'll fight to believe it. He'll hold on to me and his grip is sure. We sang about it. Our justification is secure. Your right standing with God is is there and perfect. Number three, we also will be resurrected like Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, the very passage we looked at, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, looking again at verse 22 and 23 specifically, says this, For in Adam all die, so also Christ at His coming, in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at His coming those who belong to Him. We will be resurrected like Jesus. He was the first fruit. He had a resurrected body. You know what? There's going to be a day that you too can walk through doors. Because Jesus walked through the door. 
You say, well, that sounds foolish or silly. We saw it. He's the first fruit. He has a resurrected body, the first. You too will have a resurrected body forevermore. Flesh and bone. Real flesh that you can touch. This feels real. It is real. You will one day have, we've talked about this before, you will have a real body that will not age. And you will reign on this earth forever, a resurrected earth. We will be resurrected like Jesus. Third implication. Now, these are not all-inclusive implications, but we'll look at the last one this morning. Four. Fourth implication for the resurrection. Proof that this world will be made right. Jesus' death and resurrection is the macro, large version of what will happen in the micro, this earth and cosmos. Now you might say, Jared, you should reverse that. This is the micro of what will happen in the... Jesus is the micro of what will happen in the macro, the cosmos. Uh Uh-uh. This is the macro of what will happen. The cross, death and resurrection, is the macro version, the big story, of what will happen for everything that is. For everything that exists in this earth. We will all stand one day and say that all the pain and all the suffering that it took to get here, to get to Christ's return, to resurrection life, it was worth it. All creation will one day be restored. I want you to turn, last last place, Romans, and then we're done. Romans chapter 8. And if you don't want to turn there, just listen to me. Read it. Verse 18 to 25. Here's what it says. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with the pains of childbirth until now. Let me ask you ladies who've had babies, is there pain for childbirth with childbirth? Or is it just some joke that you all made up? It's pain. It's what this earth is feeling right now. And not only creation, but we ourselves had the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes in what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we will wait for it with patience. What's happening with Jesus' resurrection is a promise that Eden 2.2 is, 2.0 is coming. Eden is coming again. Jesus' resurrection promises our resurrection and resurrection comes with cosmic implications. Cosmic resurrection. Those groaning trees... Out there, this earth that's dealing with pain like the pain of childbirth, that groans and longs that we would, the sons of God would be restored, that we would be restored, is longing, restore us, somebody come and make this right. We long for this. This is not right. The thinking earth, the animal kingdom, will someone come and redeem us? Will somebody come and restore us? Because this is not how things should be. The resurrection shows us that this earth and universe will be restored. 
and it will be given back to us, and we will reign with Christ forever. And I want you to hear this. Not only will justice be brought, but innocence will be restored, and the greater Eden will be ushered in. Listen to me. Statistically alone, I know that there is more than a handful of women who have been abused. And I know, statistically, that there are some men in this room that have been abused as well. We are sinful against God, but also the truth of us is that we are also victims. And innocence can be taken, and sadly is taken in this world from men and women, boys and girls, from perpetrators who are more vile than we can possibly describe. But the promise of resurrection and the fact that Eden will be restored, I want you to hear me. It won't be that that sin is simply punished. But you will get back what's been taken from you. I don't know how, but your innocence that was robbed from you, it won't be that justice is now served. But there's something more. Your innocence will be given back. It will be given back to you. Only God could do that. The law could come and punish your perpetrator, the person who sinned against you. But only God can say, I'll take care of it and I will give you back what was taken. That's the promise of the resurrection. Your innocence that's been stolen by sinful people will be restored. Here's the deal. The resurrection says that Eden, a greater Eden is coming. It's not just that Eden is coming back, the Garden of Eden, but something better because what's coming, the fact that it's restoration, the fact that Jesus' death and resurrection happened, it's better, better than if the fall never happened. It's better. Andrew Peterson says this in a song that he had written a couple years ago. When the world is new again and the children of the king are ancient in their youth, Ancient in their youth again. Maybe it's a better thing, a better thing to be more than merely innocent. Maybe it's a better thing to be more than merely innocent. But to be broken and then redeemed by love. Friends, we looked at it a few weeks ago. If the macro version of everything that's ever been is seen in the cross and resurrection. And people, the disciples, and those who are grieving could say, what good could come from this? How could this turn out good? And you can ask the same question about your life. How could any of this be for God's glory? How could any of this be turned for good? The resurrection is a big promise to you that says, it's coming. It's coming. You'll be able to stand one day redeemed with your innocence back and be able to say to God, thank you. What if that's true? Our God is big. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you are alive. I thank you that because of the resurrection, Eden that's coming proclaims a message to us. The restoration is coming. Restoration is coming.
In this life, we carry scars, wounds, hurt, pain, emotional trauma. Sometimes the thought of those sins simply being punished isn't enough. Or the fact that you see it and that you won't let that sinful person just get away with it. Sometimes that's not enough. Help us to think about the truth that somehow or another, Jesus, you're going to come back to each and every one of us and one day we'll receive a resurrected body and you'll say, here, it's all back. Innocence. Restoration. God, I just thank you for that. Help us to sing to you. I trust that you will. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If anybody wants to pray about anything, I'll be up here. If you just want to sing to the Lord, do that. The Holy Spirit knows how to lead us, and we will trust Him to do so. Let's sing. All right. Stand up, everybody, if you will. Um, We're going to sing about Jesus.